0: Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 248, How Trinity Theories Conflict with the Bible. In this episode of the Trinity's podcast, I'm going to explain in gruesome logical detail how there is really a logical conflict between biblical theologies and any Trinity theory. And if you've listened to this podcast for very long, or if you've looked at my work, such as my entry in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy for Trinity, you know that Trinity theories are many. But the thing that they have in common is that they identify the one God with the Trinity. It's the three of them together that are the one God. Can this be denied? Yes, anything can be denied. It turns out that there are a minority of Eastern Orthodox theologians who say, we believe in the Trinity, but we don't know about this triune God thing. If you want to hear what that's all about, I recommend Trinity's podcasts 239 through 246. But with that caveat, yes, In Trinitarian tradition, the one God is the Trinity, but in the New Testament, the one God is the Father. You can't consistently affirm both things, which is why there is a logical clash between Trinitarian traditions, which only go back to about the late 300s, and the New Testament. Protestants, I think, need to stick with the New Testament. We should prioritize clear New Testament teaching over teachings that derive from small-c Catholic speculations. So, when Scripture and tradition clash, go with Scripture. This is what we do on the whole subject of the papacy. This is what we do on the whole subject of the bread and wine being the body and blood of Jesus. This is what we do on the subject of Mariology. And I suggest we also have to do it in this case. When it comes to our core theology, we're forced to choose between the New Testament and later traditions. But at least if you're theologically educated, there are incredibly strong social pressures that you should not deviate from long-standing, prestigious traditions. For many people, it's just unthinkable that the mainstream could have made a mistake in this matter. The New Testament just has to be consistent with Catholic traditions, right? It just has to be. Now, one answer to this is, wait. You can't say that if you're a Protestant. If you're a Protestant, then you admit that there are long-standing and serious theological errors, to which, in an earlier age, most Christians were officially committed. Okay, but what I'm going to show in this podcast is that it's no good to just take offense at the idea that somehow the mainstream could have gone wrong, even though as Protestants we know that it has, You need to get past that sense of offense, even that sense of alarm and fear, because what I'm going to show is that it's demonstrably a mistake to think that you can coherently affirm both that God is the Father and that God is the Trinity. I'll give you that demonstration later in this episode. And I'm using the word demonstration very deliberately. I mean that there is a proof of inconsistency that any Trinitarian can see is valid. In other words, you can tell that there's no mistake in the reasoning. And this proof employs only premises to which the Trinitarian is committed simply by being a Trinitarian. This proof puts the Trinitarian in a very hard spot. She can either embrace the apparent contradiction, which looks very foolish when you actually say what that apparent contradiction is instead of just obliquely gesturing at it, Or she can deny obvious biblical teachings, or maybe, if she tries really hard, she can deny self-evident truths. Any way she turns, her trinity theory comes at a very high price indeed. But before I get to the proof, I need to explicate a foundational and unanalyzable concept that you already have and that you regularly use. This is the concept of numerical identity, or being numerically the same as. Let me try to explain it by means of some scenarios where you habitually employ this concept. Imagine that you're out hiking, and you point and say, there's a big rock. You're asserting three things. First of all, that there's a big thing over there where you're pointing. Call it B. Second, you're asserting that there is a rock over there where you're pointing. Call it R. Third, you're asserting that the one just is the other. That B equals R. B just is R and vice versa. So in making some existence claims, you're employing the concept of numerical identity. There's a big thing and there's a thing which is a rock and the one just is the other. That's a claim that anyone can understand. Again, imagine that you're in a theological conversation and you say, only God is uncreated. What you're saying is that God is uncreated, and also, for any X whatever, if X is uncreated, then X just is God. X equals G. X and God are one and the same. In other words, God is uncreated and nothing else is. Only God is uncreated. So, in all or only statements, cases of what logicians call universal quantification, you're employing the concept of numerical identity. Again, suppose you're reading Genesis for the first time, and you're not paying attention very well, and you're thinking that this Abram is one character and Abraham is another But then you suddenly realize your mistake, and you, as it were, collapse the two of them into one. Now you see that Abram just is Abraham, and vice versa. You realize that Abram equals Abraham, that they're one and the same. Not that they're similar, but there's just one being we're talking about there. Now, add into my scenario that you're reading some funky Old Testament translation and just to mix things up, the translator sometimes uses Abe. So now you've got three names in these accounts about the life of Abraham. But as a competent reader, you realize that this Abe is supposed to be the same character as Abraham. So the translation that you're reading assumes that Abe just is Abraham. You realize that also in this translation it has to be that Abe just is Abram. How can you infer that? Because things that are identical to the same thing must also be identical to each other. This is obvious once you grasp the concept of numerical identity. You reason like this, Abe just is Abraham, those are one and the same, and also Abram just is Abraham, Those are one and the same. And so, therefore, you know that Abe just is Abram. We're just talking about one guy here. We're just using three different names to refer to that one guy. Of course, as a Christian reader, you don't think that this variously named fellow is a fictional character. You think this is a true narrative. So, in your view, Abraham and Abram are the same man. This is to make three claims. First, Abraham is a man. Second, Abram is a man. And third, Abraham just is Abram. They are numerically identical. Now, when you're thinking about numerical identity, the most common mistake is to confuse it with the concept of qualitative identity or qualitative sameness, which is just, say, similarity. Numerical identity is one concept qualitative identity is another. One way to see the difference is just to consider the idea of identical twins. Identical twins, just by definition, are normally qualitatively the same, at least to a high degree, to an unusually high degree. But if they're really twins, we're not just talking about one person. If they're twins, they can't be numerically the same. They are two similar things, not one thing. When you talk about two things being numerically the same, you're kind of speaking improperly. Two things can't ever be numerically the same. Rather, you can realize that something is being spoken of in two different ways. Notice that qualitative sameness comes in degrees and kinds. Things can be very similar or not so similar. And things might be similar in respect of height but not similar in respect of intelligence, and so on. In contrast, the idea of numerical sameness doesn't come in degrees. It's all or nothing. Some A and B that you're referring to, they either are the same thing or they aren't. That's just it. And there don't seem to be various kinds of identity either. Now, one thing that both numerical sameness and qualitative sameness have in common is they can both be reflexive relations. So just as one thing can be similar to another, so surely everything is similar to itself. And maximally so, if we're talking about any one moment in time, things are the way they are. Usually when you're talking about similarity, you're talking about two or more different things. But yeah, strictly speaking, something is exactly qualitatively similar to itself at one time, right? In contrast, when we come to numerical sameness, that's necessarily reflexive. So what are really two things, two beings, two entities? They can be qualitatively similar to various degrees and in various ways, but two things can't be numerically the same. Only a single thing, a single entity, can be numerically the same as itself. So in any true statement of numerical sameness, we're just referring to one and the same thing twice, using two different but co-referring terms or names or expressions. So if you say slick Willie just is Bill Clinton, right, two names for one thing. You shouldn't think those are supposed to be two different men. Or if you say the Donald just is Donald Trump, right, those are two different ways of referring to one and the same orange-faced president. Okay, so I mention qualitative sameness or qualitative similarity just to make sure that you don't confuse it with the concept of numerical sameness or numerical identity. And in this proof, I'm only going to employ the concept of numerical identity. When the Trinity's podcast returns, my argument for the incoherence of biblical Trinitarianism... So in this segment, I want to explain this argument called the incoherence of biblical Trinitarianism. The first thing to note about it, and I say this in advance, is the argument does not try to show, and the argument does not presuppose, that the idea of the Trinity, supposing that is one idea, is incoherent. It is not trying to establish, nor is it assuming, that the concept of the Trinity that is granting that there is one concept there, it's neither trying to prove nor is it assuming that that concept is like the concept of a square circle, or something that's a square and not a square. So there's a standard sort of apologist's response to worries about the Trinity, and I've called it in a blog post the standard opening move, and it goes something like this. Uh, If you say something is three in one way and not three in that same way, then you've said something self-contradictory. You've said something incoherent. But aha, we Trinitarians are not doing something so foolish as that, you unbeliever, you. We Trinitarians are saying that God is three in one way and one in another way. Okay, so that's the standard opening move. But this opening move is completely irrelevant to the argument that I'm about to discuss. And the reason it's irrelevant is because the argument neither concludes nor does it assume that the concept of the Trinity by itself is incoherent. What it's saying is that some clear claims of biblical theology together with a few claims that are needed by any Trinity theory, those two together are incoherent. Those two together imply a contradiction. Okay, so it's not saying that the Trinity implies a contradiction, but it is saying that the Trinity, plus a few clear pieces of biblical teaching, those together do imply a contradiction. If you're going to reply to this argument, don't waste my time by saying, ha ha, this jerk doesn't understand that we're saying God is one in one way and three in another way. Hoo ha. What a fool. Nope. That is a silly, point-missing response. Okay, let's get on to the argument. And before I start, let me say, you should probably consult the blog post for this episode where I have all these premises written out. It will be easier to follow along in the reasoning if you do that. And in the argument, I repeatedly say, just is, and by the phrase just is, I mean to express is numerically the same as. So they're identity claims. I'm not primarily talking about words here. Words do come into it, but it's not really about words, although it is about basic reading comprehension. I know that not everybody has the patience to sit down and work through an argument like this. I know that some people, their eyes just glaze over when you start talking about careful logical inferences and concepts like numerical identity. Some people just want to hear what they want to hear. But if you have ears to hear you really should listen. It isn't my teachings that are at issue. It's really the Bible's. Premise one, God just is Yahweh. Okay. Seems like we're going to agree on that one, doesn't it? Premise two, Yahweh just is the Father. And then step three, it's a conclusion from one and two, God just is the Father. Right? If God is the same as Yahweh, and Yahweh is the same as the Father, then just by the transitivity of identity, it follows that God is the same as the Father. So, steps one through three is saying that normally, in the Bible, the terms Yahweh and the Father and God, normally, those are understood as co-referring terms, three names for the same one God, the one true God. Now, there are other uses of the word father. You know, if you're talking about uh, David as father of Solomon, there are other uses of the term God. But anyway, it's not an argument about word usage. It's an argument about these, what look like on the face of it, to be three characters. And premise one says, no, God and Yahweh are not two characters. You have to collapse those. Those are really one and the same. Premise two says, And also, Yahweh just is the one that's called the Father in the New Testament. So, yeah, you're supposed to collapse those, not think those are two different ones. And then it follows from those that three, God just is the Father, that those are one and the same. Now, three, in addition to following from one and two, it's also something that's clearly asserted in the New Testament. But let me continue. Step four is that God just is... The Trinity, and that's of course an additional premise. It's one which a Trinitarian is going to want to affirm. And five, it is not the case that the Trinity just is the Father. In other words, it's wrong to collapse the Trinity and the Father and say, well, those are just one and the same. Though no, they're not one and the same, there are things that are true of one that are not true of the other, according to you. According to anybody, if there is such a thing as the tripersonal God, It can't be the same thing as the Father because the Father is not tripersonal. Okay, but now there's trouble looming because six follows from three and four. Three and four say God just is the Father and God just is the Trinity. Well, it follows that six, the Trinity, just is the Father. Well, wait a second, that doesn't sound right. Who wants to say that the Trinity is the Father? Well, probably just about no one, but here's what's worse. Step six is just the opposite of step five. Five is just a denial of six. Six says the Trinity just is the Father, and five says it is not the case that the Trinity just is the Father. So five and six taken together, they're just affirming and denying the very same claim. Okay, and so the problem with this argument is that It seems ridiculous to accept both 5 and 6, and so what should we do now? We need to find some problem in the reasoning that led us to both 5 and 6. Now, if you look at the blog post for this episode, I provide the logical analysis of every step in the argument using standard symbols from symbolic logic, but uh, I won't go into it now. The point is 5 and 6 are a formal contradiction. They're not just things that sound surprising together or things that sort of savor of paradox or strangeness or something like that. No, one of them is just the denial of the other. Five and six together, assert and deny the very same claim. We know that there can't be any pair of sentences like that, which are both true. The same claim can't be true and false. Okay, so we can't accept both five and six. What should we do? let's go through the argument a little bit more slowly and ask, well, why should I accept that premise? So premise one is God just is Yahweh. That's just clearly taught throughout the Old Testament. Yahweh is just the proper name of the one true God in the Old Testament. Yahweh's not supposed to be one being and then this God is another, right? If you were to distinguish between those two characters, Yahweh and God, you'd be making a really bad mistake, and not a philosophical mistake or something, just a bad mistake of reading comprehension. So anybody that agrees with just the core, the rock-bottom part of Old Testament theology is going to agree with one. Premise 2 says Yahweh just is the Father. Now, this isn't something you're going to see explicitly asserted in the Bible, and it's for a strange reason. By the Father, of course, we mean the one called the Father in the New Testament. Also, God the Father, our Father in heaven, the Heavenly Father, and so on. That's who we're talking about. Now, the New Testament wasn't written in Hebrew, so it's not going to use the Hebrew proper name, Yahweh. Still, they could have transliterated it into Greek characters. But still, they don't want to use it, because in that time, in the first century, they thought it was impious, they thought it was disrespectful to God, to use God's name. It's an interesting question why that's so, because you see God's name being used, for instance, all through the Psalms, but let's leave that interesting historical question to one side. They would substitute phrases like, the Lord, Hakurios and other phrases instead of using God's proper name. Okay, but even though they don't use the name Yahweh, it's still clear that this one that in former times was called Yahweh is in New Testament times referred to as the Father, etc. I'll come back to two a little bit later and say some more about it, but let's just continue our run through the argument and the evidence for each premise. Five says that God just is the Father, And this follows from 1 and 2 because numerical identity is transitive. So there's nothing about theology here. This is just basic critical thinking skills when we're talking about identity statements. If A equals B, in other words, A and B are the same thing, and B equals C, then it follows that A equals C. If A and B are the same thing and B and C are the same thing, well, then A and C have to be the same thing. That's self-evident. Bigger than is also a transitive relation. You understand that as well. If A is bigger than B and B is bigger than C, then A is bigger than C. But back to identity. In this case, God just is Yahweh. That's premise one. Yahweh just is the Father. That's premise two. And therefore, by the transitivity of identity, God just is the Father. Okay, so three is implied by one and two. If you're committed to one and two, just because you're committed to core biblical theology, Old Testament and New Testament, respectively, you're also committed to three. And also, interestingly, this assertion that God just is the Father is a clear New Testament teaching also, independently of the reasoning I just gave you. So you could support three directly from the New Testament, but also one and two imply three. Okay, step four, God just is the Trinity, what can be said in favor of this? Okay, this is an extra premise, it's not something that follows from what we've seen so far. It's a third original premise, step four, that we're adding into the argument. And it's not directly or really clearly asserted anywhere in the Bible. What it is, is it's the defining thesis of any Trinitarian theology. So, if you're a Trinitarian, the one God just is the Trinity, The triune God is the one God. If you're a Trinitarian, you're committed to four. Now, step five is a little bit trickier. However, it is a premise to which any Trinitarian is committed. Here's how. It's self-evident that nothing can at one time or in eternity be and not be the same way. That is, nothing can at one time or in eternity differ from itself. If I can put it abstractly, numerical identity implies indiscernibility at a time. If there is a triune God, this can't just be, that is, this God can't be numerically identical with the Father because those would eternally, either timelessly or at all times, differ from one another. The Trinity is supposed to have the Father as one of its three persons but the Father is not supposed to have the Father as one of its three persons. Again, the Trinity is supposed to be tripersonal, but the Father is not tripersonal according to any orthodox or small-c Catholic Trinity theory. Again, the Father is supposed to eternally generate the Son, but the Trinity per se is not supposed to be generating the Son. That's something that only the Father is supposed to do. Okay, so simply by being a Trinitarian, you are committed to its being false that the Trinity just is the Father and vice versa, because those two things differ from each other, so they have to really be two. Okay, and then six is a conclusion. It's not another premise thrown in, and it follows from three and four. The easiest way to see it, remember, three and four are that God just is the Father and that God just is the Trinity. And it's self-evident that things that are identical to the same thing must also be identical to each other. So if A is identical to C and also B is identical to C, it follows that A and B are identical. Again, that's self-evident. So here, God just is the Trinity, and God just is the Father, and so the Trinity just is the Father. Six follows from three and four. Okay, so... If you're a Trinitarian and you want to be faithful to Scripture, this argument really puts you in a pickle. You start off with uncontroversial contents of Scriptural teaching, steps one through three. Then we add in two unavoidable commitments of any Trinitarian theology, four and five. But these things imply a formal contradiction, which is the pair five and six. So just by logic, we know that one of one through five is false. If you assume all of 1 through 5, you also get 6, and then you have a set that can't all be true, right? Whatever implies a contradiction is false. If you have a set of statements that together imply a contradiction, you can infer from that that at least one of that original set has to be false. Maybe it's more than one, but it has to be at least one premise in there is false. This is just critical thinking 101. Okay, this is just the type of reasoning that you'd see in any introductory logic class in any university in the 20th, 21st centuries. When the Trinities podcast returns, what's a Trinitarian to do? experience is that a truly committed Trinitarian will try to protect claim four at all costs, four being that the one God just is the Trinity. Perhaps the first thought of many, particularly people who are more educated in theology than they are in philosophy, will be to deny five. They'll look at five, which says it's not the case that the Trinity just is the Father They'll say, aha, that's not a scriptural step in the argument, it's a philosophical step, and that's got to be the problem there. You can't trust those rascally philosophers and their crazy philosophical theories. Five is what should be denied is the only non-scriptural claim here. Well, this looks like a profoundly silly move. I mean, look, if your theology implies that one plus one is not two, then... The response should not be to say, well, fooey on 1 plus 1 equals 2. That's ridiculous. You should go back and fix your theology so it doesn't imply things like that. If your theology says there can be square circles, you need to improve your theology. The reasoning behind 5 is just really pedestrian and really solid. We could even, if we wanted to, formulate a subsidiary argument to support premise 5, at least to support premise five, if you're committed to Trinitarian theology. This argument would be step one, according to any Trinitarian theology, the Father and the Trinity will simultaneously, so either at the same time or in eternity, take your pick, they will simultaneously differ. Premise two, things that simultaneously differ are numerically distinct. Right? They're not numerically the same. They are two and not one. They can't be one because a thing can't at one time be and not be a certain way. Alright, so it follows three, therefore, according to any Trinitarian theology, the Father and the Trinity are numerically distinct. No nothing to find fault with there. If you're a Trinitarian, you have to agree that some things are going to be true of the Father that aren't true of the Trinity, and vice versa. And anybody can see that this reasoning is valid. That is, the conclusion follows from the premises. And premise two here, that things that simultaneously differ are numerically distinct, that's self-evident. That's something that everybody knows. So denying that would be like denying one plus one is two, or there are no four-sided triangles or claims like that. So going back to the main argument, I mean, you're committed to five just by being a Trinitarian. Okay, so that's no good. You can't just keep four and discard five. Looks like you're going to have to defend both four and five. But one is off the table too, right? No Trinitarian should want to mess with one. It's just simple reading comprehension when it comes to the Old Testament that the one God is none other than Yahweh himself. In English, Yahweh and God, or The Lord in all caps and God. Generally in the Old Testament, those are co referring terms, right? Because that's supposed to be one character, one being, one God. So things you have to take off the table if you're a Trinitarian include one, four, and five. You don't want to deny those. That leaves you with really very few options. You can deny two or you can deny three. Otherwise, you're still riding the contradiction train all the way to its unwelcome destination okay but about two and three notice that three follows from one and two and you agree with one you don't want to deny one okay so really you have to attack two you have to deny or at least cast doubt on the premise that the Yahweh of the Old Testament is the one called father in the New Testament so if you're saying I don't like three that God just is the father Okay, but three follows from one and two, so which of those do you deny? You don't deny one, that God just is Yahweh. Looks like then to avoid three, you need to deny two. You need to deny that Yahweh just is the Father. What about that? Haven't we found the weak premise? Haven't we found the premise that any Trinitarian should deny? Aha, it's step two. That's where the proof goes wrong. Right there. Step two. Nope. Mm Mm-mm. Well, I don't think you should do that. Now, this claim that Yahweh just is the Father, that's not really a teaching point of the New Testament. It's not something that's explicitly stated there, and really they can't state it because, as I explained, they weren't allowed to use the word Yahweh in their day. However, it is a shared assumption of all New Testament writers The reason they don't say it is not just because they can't use the word Yahweh. Even if they could use that word, still, this would be the kind of thing that didn't need stating. This would be just something that all these Jewish people agree on. When Jesus goes around talking about the Father, or when Paul goes around talking about the Father, they're not talking about Joseph. They're not talking about some new deity that's never been heard of before, or some angel or something. No, they're talking about the one God. They're talking about Yahweh, right? So even though this isn't stated explicitly in the New Testament, it is an assumption there. And in a sense, it's part of the content of their teaching. And there are times where this statement comes really close to the surface. So I'll give you two examples. One is the way Luke talks in the book of Acts. So in chapter 2 of Acts, Luke has Peter say the following. This Jesus God raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you both see and hear. Okay, this Jesus God raised up, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, he's just used the word God two times in a row. And he doesn't want to use it a third time because that would sound awkward. So what he does is he switches to the phrase, the father, right? He could have said, this Jesus God raised up, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from God the promise of the Holy Spirit. He could have said that, but then he'd be using God three times in a row. So instead, he goes, God, God, father. Why did he do it? Well, just for variety, it seems. We do this in all the human languages I'm aware of. We don't like to just hammer the same name or the same title over and over, so we like to switch it up a little bit. We use pronouns to do that, and then we swap names and titles sometimes to do that. The reason Luke can do that is because he thinks that normally God and the Father are co-referring terms. It's not going to confuse the reader that he's swapping the terms like this because the reader understands this as well. Okay, go to the next chapter. So he's using the terms God and the Father as interchangeable co-referring terms. Okay, skip up to chapter 3, one chapter ahead. There's another sermon by Peter, and Luke has Peter say this, You Israelites, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us, as though by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and rejected in the presence of Pilate, though he had decided to release him. Okay, so he refers to this one called the God of our ancestors hmm, who would that be? That would be the God of the Jews, right? That would be the one that everyone knows was called Yahweh in the Jewish scriptures. But this is the same God mentioned before, the same God who's also called Father. This is the God of our ancestors, so it's the God of the Jews, the God of the Jewish Bible. I mean, it's pretty clear that Luke is presupposing that the Father, just as God, And that same one is also Yahweh, even though he doesn't say the word Yahweh. Here's another example of this assumption in the New Testament. Paul repeatedly calls someone the God of Jesus. Well, which God is that? Surely, just by the context of the times, by the time and the place, by Paul's own background as a Pharisee, Surely this God of Jesus is the one true God. It's supposed to be Yahweh, right? The Creator. And by the way, this one true God, the Creator, is the Father. So in Ephesians 1, cutting a portion of it out just for length, Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless before him in love. I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, and for this reason I do not cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him. Who is this one who's Jesus' God? Well, it's the God, it's the Father, and come on, Paul is a Jew, and this is none other than Yahweh. So it's basic reading comprehension to realize that He means the same one by God and Father in this passage and in many others. And in its first century Jewish context, it's clear the same one is Yahweh himself, the one true God of the Jewish scriptures. Okay, so given your commitment to one, my Trinitarian friend, and again, one is that God just is Yahweh. God and Yahweh are one and the same. Given your commitment to that, in order to deny three, you also must deny two. But in denying too, you are in the teeth of clear New Testament theology. God, a.k.a. the Father, in the New Testament is supposed to be Yahweh, the unique God of the Old Testament. That is foundational to understanding the New Testament. Has it ever been denied? Well, you know, just about everything's been denied. You could be a Marcionite and you could say that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. But I don't recommend that. It looks like, my Trinitarian friend, you are committed to all of one through five. You're committed to one through three by scripture, and you're committed to four and five by your Trinity theory, whichever theory that is. Okay, but then you have a clear contradiction on your hands. Don't cry mystery here and expect us to think that that's a reasonable escape. How is this a mystery? The meaning of all the claims here, 1 through 6, is perfectly clear. There's no mysterious claim there. There's no claim that can barely be understood. So you can't mean that it's a mystery in the sense that it can barely be understood. Your point, if you're going to play the mystery card, has to be that there's an apparent contradiction here. Indeed, there is an apparent contradiction here, 5 and 6. Now, if you reply with the obvious truism that not every apparent contradiction is a real contradiction, well, we'll all nod in agreement, but who cares? Because this sure looks like a real contradiction. It has the form P and not P. The very same thing is being both affirmed and denied in 5 and 6. If you're really going to die on the mystery hill, do it like a man and go ahead and say out loud what the mystery is. Own it. Just say, in my view, it is and isn't the case that the Trinity just is the Father. Or, if you like, the Trinity and the Father are the same, and also they are not the same. And yes, I meant same in the same sense both times. What's that? You don't want to try the mystery escape here? Good. I don't want you to either, because it's ridiculous. When the Trinity's podcast returns, another way to look at this problem, a way that respects the fact that there are differences in the level of evidence or justification we have for various claims. Here's another way to look at our problem, and it's a way that's, on the face of it, a lot more reasonable than just mystery mongering. If you can't hold on to all of a group of statements, it looks like the one that you should let go of should be the one with the least evidence. So the weak link in the chain is the one that has to go. So let's consider the various steps in our argument in light of differing degrees of evidence. Now just arbitrarily I'm going to label them level 1 evidence and level 2 evidence. To have level one evidence is to be somewhat plausible in light of all relevant considerations. Level two is a higher level of evidence or justification. It's something that you're somewhat more sure of because it is plain biblical teaching. And let's assume that you know that the Bible is inspired. Okay, so in the way that you can know things because the Bible teaches them, call that level two Theological speculations are going to be a little bit less justified than those, right? Just because they're speculations. Call that level one. Now go back to the argument. We can't keep both five and six because they can't both be true. Any Trinitarian is committed to five. You've got to get rid of six. The problem is that six logically follows from what comes before in the argument. So let's look at one through four and ask ourselves, where is the weak link there? And it's going to be pretty clear which one it is. Again, I'm assuming that you as a Christian can know something because it's clearly taught in Scripture. Okay, well, that's how you know one through three. You know that the one God just is, Yahweh. You know that Yahweh just is the Father. And you know that God just is the Father. Now, what grounds do you have for four? well four is a piece of speculative theology right you might have some argument to try to get you from the bible to the trinity it's a fairly complex argument probably it's going to be appreciably more complex than this argument that we're looking at it's going to be controversial it's going to be something probably that other trinitarians will disagree with it's going to be something that may depend on contentious interpretations of the New Testament, unlike anything we've seen in this episode so far. So maybe you think you have some grounds for thinking that God just is the Trinity. Okay, but you still admit that that is a piece of speculative theology. But then if claims one through three have a somewhat high degree of justification and claim four has a somewhat less degree of justification, four is the weak link. That God is Trinity is not an explicit scriptural teaching, nor is it a clear assumption of any author in the Bible, nor is it really clearly, obviously inferred from anything in the Bible. You can know that it's not clearly implied by anything in the Bible by the fact that nobody in Christian history is talking about God as the Father, Son, and Spirit, God as tripersonal, until sometime in the second half of the 300s. So in the days of Justin, in the days of Tertullian, in the days of Origen, these guys were considered leading defenders of mainstream Christianity. They never mentioned that the one God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not there. I've read all their writings, and I can tell you, it's not there. There are people who squint really hard because they really, really want it to be there. They've got to find it there somewhere. But honestly, it's just not there when you read the writings in their original context and when you're very careful with the translations. Okay, so you know that four is not obviously implied by Scripture. Okay, but one through three are, so looks like four should go. Be a good Protestant. When there's a clear clash, as in this case, between Scripture and later traditions, go with Scripture. That's the safe way, right? You believe that Scripture is divinely inspired. You believe, in particular, that the New Testament books, or even just maybe most of them, really do accurately represent apostolic teaching, which represents Jesus' teaching, plus what was revealed by God's Spirit after Jesus' ascension right go with their theology you don't need theology as formulated by bishops in the late 300s just like you don't need the papacy just like you don't need transubstantiation just like you don't need the idea that you can't preach or baptize without the authorization of an official catholic bishop Just like you don't need to devote yourself to Mary or to the other saints. You don't need any of that stuff. Theory has to bow to fact. Once you deny four, there's no longer any basis on which to conclude six. Problem solved. The price is that you can no longer, in good conscience, remain in what I call the Trinity Club. That is, a group of people who are devoted to this family of traditional speculations about God being triune. Never mind that they don't really agree with each other in their theology. Anyway, they're part of that club. They talk good about the Trinity. They think it's awesome and insightful and that it's one of the things that makes Christianity better than any other religion. If you want a biblical theology, you don't want to say that the one God is the Trinity. You want to say that the one God is the Father, a.k.a. Yahweh, a.k.a. God. I'm not going to lie, getting out of the Trinity Club is a pretty high social price for some of us. There might even be a financial cost to you. But what you've bought is a biblical theology. You've bought a theology that makes sense and which avoids the many agonies of Trinitarian theorizing. So there you have it, as clearly as I can lay it out, the inconsistency of the Bible with Trinity theories. And this is why, ever since the Reformation, over and over, Protestants keep discovering that, oh, actually, in the Bible, God is one person. That is, the Father. The Father is the same person as Yahweh, is the same person as God. Those are just co-referring terms. And as to this tripersonal God, that's just not in there. It's a product of theory. Not any simple theory. It's the end result of a couple centuries of aggressive speculation about God's logos and God's spirit and so on. Before we go, I just wanted to remind you about my upcoming debate with Dr. Michael Brown. The debate topic is, is the God of the Bible the Father alone? This debate will be January 11th in concord north carolina at fire church details can be found in a couple of different facebook groups and at my blog and at the fire Church's website i think there might be a good crowd there you might want to show up a little before seven I could be wrong i haven't done this before but i have the impression there's going to be a good turnout your prayers as always are much appreciated pray for both Dr. Brown and I that we could have a good and helpful debate, a debate which will help people to have better insight into the contents of divine revelation. You may have noticed that my sound is different in this episode. I decided to try recording a different way. I won't bore you with the technical details. Let me know if you think this sounds better or worse than other recent episodes of the Trinity's Podcasts. This week's Thinking Music has been the track The Parting Glass, Instrumental, by Tobias Weber, also known as Ausens at ITER, I-T-E-R. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at Trinity's. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.